Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 30. We're going to be discussing student debt, student loan forgiveness, higher education, the meaning of the universe, (laughs) mainly focused on higher education and student debt. This is obviously a topic that's been discussed at length. This is being discussed right now as Biden and company are proposing bills that are going to forgive something like $10,000 in loans, and I'm sure there'll be conditions attached to that. Or And right now the debate within the Democratic Party is whether or not to forgive 10000 or whether 10000 isn't enough and they should forgive something closer to 50000 And so that's the debate that's going on right now. It's closely related to the COVID stimulus bill. They're considering attaching it to that in order to get it passed or doing something else. And they've also talked about him using executive action to forgive these loans. And and part of the argument is that the COVID epidemic, pandemic, epidemic and pandemic are my least favorite words because they're, (laughs) they're, they have very different meanings, but not in the way we use either of them. But yeah, it's true. It's true. As far as as specific applications and what they technically mean, they might as well be interchangeable in common usage. But in this epipandemic of COVID, (laughs) they need forgive student loan debt in order to free up the finances of a lot of people who are struggling. So in preparation for this episode, we did a lot of research into what the current situation looks like. And 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 how I understood it was that, you know, there's a lot of varying kinds of student loans out there, lots of different debt held by different banks and different corporations, and that a lot of that debt or most of that debt was actually guaranteed by the federal government, you know, and there were federal restrictions in place and things like that. Right. What And, and what, what I found out was pretty interesting. So right now, there are 47.9 million student borrowers who are in debt an average of $35,000, which comes out to $1.7 trillion. And that debt grows six times faster than the national economy. The debt is growing exponentially year over year at a crazy rate. What else is really interesting about that is how much of that is actually federal loans. So of that 1.7 trillion, what's surprising about that is how little of those loans are actually private loans. Only 8.4% of that 1.7 trillion is actually private loans. The vast majority of it, or 1.57 trillion, is federal student loans. So most of this money is actually being loaned out by the federal government to students directly, which was very surprising to me, Dan. Right, right. That is not the image I had in mind either. I knew that uh, federal government was involved in some of it, but I had assumed that it was the federal government involvement was behind the private institutions rather than directly. Yeah, and so that's it's definitely crazy how much of this is is government controlled is 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 a direct government action. You know, what we're talking about here is not the relationship between an individual regulation and a business who's loaning them money. What we're talking about is a relationship between an individual and a government agency, which changes things. You know, something I was thinking about as they were discussing it is is as they were talking about Biden passing an executive order to to forgive student loans. And I was thinking, you know, that might actually be practically possible because, you know, theoretically his executive orders can only be used to execute something within the executive branch. You know, he can tell an agency to do or not do something. And when you have all these agencies having all this power, in terms of student loans, that could actually be feasible for these agencies to forgive student debt, literally, by Biden's decree. Right, by just saying, we're not going to come after this debt. Yeah. We're going to put our resources somewhere else. And that is an interesting point. I That ratio of student debt has shifted significantly. It used to be mostly private institutions and has rapidly changed over the last two decades. To get to the point where we are now, where it's, as you said, it's almost exclusively federal government debt. 
And that makes loan forgiveness make a little more sense because what would what does that actually look like? Well, it looks like the government writing it off. <laughs> they, they simply they simply cross this out and go, we're not gonna we're not gonna try and get payments on this anymore. And that uh, that's a very different thing than if you were getting money from someone like a a bank, right? And you just say, oh, actually, I'm not gonna I'm gonna stop making payments on that. That kind of loan, if that's the loan forgiveness you're talking about. That's that looks to me very different than if the federal government just says, okay, we're going to cross a few numbers off our list. There is no private property here at stake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the vast majority of it isn't private property in terms of what it would look like financially. You know, they would only have to raise billions of dollars to pay for the, the private portion of that student relief versus the trillions of dollars for the federal government's portion. Yeah. So my question as we study all of this, Dan, as we look at all these numbers, the first question I have is why is there so much student debt? When I think of student debt for college, I think of the classic story of an individual who wants to become a doctor, who goes to medical school. Yeah, has the grades, but comes from a poor family. Comes from a poor family. He he takes out loans. He gets some partial scholarships. He gets some Pell Grants, which is just a, a federal loan he doesn't have to pay back from the beginning. You know, he gets a, a little bit of help there, and then he takes out loans to pay for the rest. He goes through. He gets his internship. He becomes a resident. He becomes a full doctor, and he starts making $200,000 a year, $300,000 a year. And within a handful of years is able to pay off that student debt. You know, he accumulates a large amount, like 150000 but he's able to pay it off by the time he's, you know, 35 because he's making so much, which is why he went into the field in the first place, right? Right. And that's right. how I visualize it. Or someone goes and becomes a lawyer and they and they spend a lot to make a lot. And that's the argument, you know, it's high risk, high yes. reward. You got you to gotta spend money to earn money. Etc. Yeah, invest, et invest in invest your education. In your the key yeah. word being invest. It's it's not a, it's not a, uh, spend money on knowledge for its own sake. That's not what's being said. That's not usually how it's discussed. It's hey, if you do this, you will be it will be more profitable in the long run for you. And and so the thing that really confused me is as people are talking about the student debt relief and how important it is. They interviewed individual people who were talking about the the debt they have that's followed them throughout their life. You know, people who are in their 30s and 40s who have or even older or, or even older who have, you know, $100,000 in debt and yet they're only making $50,000 a year and not being able to make those payments and, and it just dominating their life. And so, of course, my immediate question is, is. Why are you making $50,000 a year if you have $100,000 in student debt? You should be able to make a lot more. And in order to understand that, you have to look at the current education system because the way the current system of education is set up is very weird. Yes. And very complicated and very convoluted. And there's all these things that go into it that make it more complicated and 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 make it messed up. Um, here's an example. The University of Utah, here in Utah, had a budget in the year 2019 of $4.83 billion. That's a lot of money, considering yes. <laughs> considering their budget for the whole state. The state budget was just under $20 billion. So we're talking about a quarter. A quarter of the budget was just for the University of Utah. Of course, it's not coming from the state budget. It's also coming from tuition and from other things. But just to give you an right. idea of the scope of the University of Utah, because it is a public college, and they had 32,000 students, which sounds like a lot. It is but a lot. divide that $4.83 billion by those 32,000 students, and you're looking at a budget of about $147,000 per student. So almost one hundred and fifty grand per year, per student being spent by the University of Utah. And this is a school, by the way, whose tuition is just under 10 grand a year per student if you're an undergraduate. Right, which tells you, <laughs> yeah, which tells you a number of things already, right? Tuition is paying a fraction of the money here. Tuition is less than 10% of their revenue stream. If you look at their budget, they break it down and I think it's, it's, it's less than 10%. Somewhere around eight or nine percent of their budget is from tuition. 
My immediate thought is, if I had $147,000 a year to spend on a student's education, what would that look like? $100,000 is a very good professor job. Maybe not in an Ivy League, right? But in most places, but at the University of Utah, yeah, you're doing really well. You're doing really well. Most of them are going to be making less than that. I bet the median is lower than that. And that's significantly less than what they're spending for, per student. <laughs> well, why don't, we, why don't we pay one professor? I'll take $147,000 and I will give somebody the education of a lifetime. I will dedicate my life to educating that person, right? <laughs> you, can, you can pay someone full time to teach one person, give them $100,000, and that person would get an education that would be unbelievable. But of course, it's it's not so simple, Dan, because universities are not simply educational bodies. The University of Utah is a, is a research university, and so they have research labs that get grants, and then for those grants, they, they have a very large hospital. One of the larger hospitals here in Utah is the University of Utah, and that generates a lot of revenue. I know when we had our baby, we had it at the University of Utah, and between us and insurance, they made over 20 grand. Right. And I, and I think you're tapping into something really important here to recognize in this discussion, which is that higher education is not necessarily about education. Education is one interest among many. The research is a massive part of it. And that includes things, as you said, like in the case of the University of Utah, an entire hospital, right? an entire <laughs> medical, yeah. like in a massive one, too. I think that there's a network of hospitals, if I, if I remember correctly, is that yeah, it's it's That's a massive right. hospital. They've got clinics scattered throughout the valley. You know, you've also got Primary Children's Hospital that's located right there at the university, which is connected to the University of Utah. And it's, I mean, it's very good. Like you, for example, St. George is a city that has a population of 100,000. And if someone is hurt there and they can't deal with it, they life flight them to the university. They don't life flight them right. to Intermount Hospital. They bring them to the university and to primary children's, you know, depending on who they are, because, it, because what they're doing is fantastic. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. We're not saying that, that there's a problem with that. What we're saying is that the money problems with higher education become complicated. Because the hospital is just one area. The research grants is just one area. Another area is uh, is sports. College football is a huge industry that sometimes makes the colleges money. But more often than not, the colleges are actually losing money year over year from their college department. <laughs> right. If I, had a, if I were not familiar with the way these sports departments work, I would think that they're just a massive waste of money for the schools. And the answer is they might be. But it's not going to be as big of a waste as you think because those programs actually because of how do much money they money. generate. Yeah. They generate a lot of money. Lots of people watch them, and obviously, of all the things that generate money in the college schools, it will be the football team of all of the athletics programs. I know a school that the the football athletics program by itself generates enough money to pay for all of the sports of all genders and all in all fields. Right? It's it's. It's massive, and that, and that that can be true in some of them. In others, it's a significant net loss. But as you said, it's a whole nother area that has massive amounts of money moving in and out of it that is connected to all these other ones. And there's no easy way to disconnect all those factors because if you want to go and become a chemical engineer at the University of Utah, how much money the football department makes affects how much you have to pay for tuition. You know, how profitable their hospital is affects how much money you have to pay for tuition. In fact, how prestigious the university is because of the hospital, even if the hospital is profitable for them, affects your tuition. You know, University of Utah can charge more, not necessarily because they need to, but because of the prestige they have from these research programs, from the hospital that establishes them as a better college or better university, excuse me, college, university. I know they're technically different, but when I say college, I'm talking mostly about universities. Right. It establishes them as a, as a better school and thus they're able to charge more when it has nothing to do with the education that you're trying to get. Which I think brings us to the, the question that people are wondering, which is how do you decrease the cost of tuition? So that's what student loan forgiveness is about. Schools may be, a, the universities may be a complex thing with lots of different financial incentives and factors and aspects going into it. But what do we do to decrease tuition? Because tuition, as you have likely heard if you're 
curious about this episode. Tuition has increased at a rate unlike anything else, with the exception of healthcare. <laughs> if you look at price increases, right, everything goes up in price. Inflation causes everything to go up in price. So over time, the prices increase. Without inflation, you don't get that. Prices would actually go down. As technology improves, as things become easier, as competition becomes more efficient, prices go down. I could pause here and just drool over what a dream that would be to live in such a system <laughs> where your money is worth more every year, where if you didn't get a raise, that's not all that important because everything's getting cheaper because everything's getting easier to make, which is true. That's the way, that's the way technology works as it advances. But that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where inflation is a fundamental goal of the Federal Reserve and our monetary policy. And thank as you, inflation Fed. increases, <laughs> thank you, Federal Reserve. As those things increase, the prices increase. And so you can calculate that. There's a kind of steady, fairly consistent influence that inflation has on all goods. And there are ways that you can roughly estimate that. And when you account for inflation across time, it does not begin to account for the increases in tuition, nor does it begin to account for the healthcare costs. These are things that are so far beyond it that you need other explanations. Brad was saying that the student loans have grown exponentially, and they've grown exponentially as the tuition has grown exponentially. By definition, as, as, <laughs> By you, as you have to pay more for school and your income levels are not going up, and by you I'm referring to people in general, you know, the average, you know, as people are making about the same amount of money, but having to pay more for tuition, obviously they're going to have to take out more loans. Yeah. Ever since about 1965, the, the rate of increase has been massive. And there are reasons that you can, you can, there are reasons that it has been faster at some points and slower at others, but that it has been a massive increase across time that's been consistently increasing is an extremely important factor in understanding this problem. In other words, everyone sees that there's an issue. Everyone sees that there is some form of higher education issue. And the issue is that it's becoming less and less affordable for people to go to college. Going to college is becoming more and more difficult. More and more people can't afford it or are taking out loans and then becoming shackled to those loans for the rest of their lives. Which is why... The student loan forgiveness idea has become so popular. It's because it is trying to address a real issue. And the solution that's being proposed now is simply cancel those loans. And before we want to go on, I want to mention real quick why, regardless of how you feel about college tuition and these issues that we've addressed, just canceling student debt is a terrible idea. Because it doesn't solve any of the issues that we've talked about. <laughs> if you cancel existing student debt, even if you canceled all of it, all you've done is put a Band-Aid solution on the problem because people are still going to need to take out loans and 20 years down the road or even 10 years down the road, you're going to have the same problem. Except for the fact that now that you've forgiven student loans once people are going to be much more willing to get a student loan, assuming that 10 years down the road, you're going to forgive them again. If you say, hey, we're going to forgive all student loans right now, today, you know, in February of 2021, I'm much more likely to go to the more expensive college next year and not pay a dime of my own money, even if I can, because I figure, hey, I'll rack up $200,000 in student loan debt make the minimum payments for a couple of years, and then I'm going to get another president who feels the same, and my debt's going to get erased. And because of that, incentives are going to be even more skewed, and maybe 10 years from now, when you've got a president who wants to do it again, instead of there being $1.7 in student debt, maybe it'll be $4.8 trillion, because... People see no reason not to take student loan debt. So even, <laughs> even if you disagree with student loans and how they are now and agree something needs to change, this is not the solution. So what we want to talk about is what some of the solutions are. And before we can do that, we need to better understand some of the problems because we've only touched on kind of the bigger picture 
but not on what some of the issues are that lead to the situation that exists now. The first specific problem is one that probably won't occur to most people. This is the one that gets me every time I think about student loan debt. Normally, if you get to a position where you can't pay anything on your loans, we have what you call bankruptcy. And our bankruptcy laws are somewhat unique. I have mixed feelings about them. Most often they're taken advantage of by, by businesses in, in different situations. But there are, some, there are some pros and cons to those laws and, and what they do. But one of the things they don't do is they don't get you out of student loan debt. Bankruptcy will not save you. You could declare bankruptcy and it will not wipe away your student loans. And like Dan, I have mixed feelings about bankruptcy. But one thing that bankruptcy absolutely does do is it helps ensure that no one can become so in debt that they end up becoming an indentured servant for the rest of their lives, where they're forced to pay off a debt and have nothing else forever, right? Because that's that's something that used to happen on a regular basis and still does in some areas, and something that when this country was created, people were very afraid of and, and worked hard to prevent. You know, what we didn't want was a whole bunch of debtors' prisons and a whole bunch of debtors who were in some form of perpetual slavery. You know, there were even times where your debts could be taken and transferred to your children, where they right. would have to pay off your debts and their children's children. And it became this incredibly destructive process. And things like bankruptcy were designed to prevent that. That right. no matter what happens in your life, that shouldn't happen. And what that meant is that if you were a bank, if you were some kind of institution that was giving out a loan, you had to consider that when you made your loan to make sure that the person was going to pay it back instead of eventually falling apart in, in, or falling into bankruptcy and being unable to pay it back. Yeah, it, it fundamentally changes the way banks would work. Without bankruptcy, as you said, you, you say, okay, you want to do this loan? It's a terrible idea. I know you're never going to pay it back, but I'm going to give it to you. And if it doesn't work, I'm basically going to turn you into an indentured servant. I'm going to seize you. I'm going to seize your property. I'm going to seize your family. And you're going to work it off. You're going to work for me for the rest of your life, right? If that's an option, the banks have much less incentive. If, if that's an option, then the banks are much more likely to give loans to people who aren't going to be able to pay them. But if bankruptcy is an option, the banks now have incentive to be super careful with it. Because if they give it to someone who can't afford to pay it back, who's, who it's not going to work out for, they're out of luck. They lose the money. <laughs> they're just tough luck for them, right? It's a, it's a net loss. And that's why banks are going to, that's one of many reasons why banks are so careful with lending money. Now, just let that sink in for a second. That does not apply to student loans. That does not apply to student loans. You know what other loans it doesn't apply to? None. Yeah, I'll say I, I don't. None. There are no other loans that are protected like that. There are no other loans that allow for this kind of, as Brad described it, that's what the, the people who set it up were trying to escape, this kind of indentured servitude. And if you cannot escape it, what is the risk of giving this loan? What risk is the bank taking? Well, at this point, it's mostly the federal government. What risk is the federal government taking? But here's the, where another piece of this puzzle comes into play. When it was the banks, the loans were guaranteed. Often, this is the case, there's, there's so much of the American banking system now where if the banks can't collect the money from the people, the government will pay them. It's hidden behind a variety of bank mechanisms. Our, our banking system is... It's a mess. It's is a hot a mess. mess. It's a hot mess. It's, it's so bad. It's, we, we talked about the house always wins. We were discussing the mm -hmm. stock market. The banks always win. The banks always win. We accepted at some point that if the banks could not pay people, if there was a problem with them, it would be so bad for the ordinary person that it was unacceptable. And so the Federal Reserve has guaranteed banks in a variety of ways and in an increasing number of ways as different laws are implemented ever since. To the point where banks have very little risk in almost any of their endeavors. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, a lot of those protections and restrictions, regulations that Dan's talking about came about as a direct result of the Great Depression 
almost a hundred years ago now. Oh, how time flies. And since then, those regulations have only continued, you know, even as little as 12, 13 years ago when we had the the housing market crash and the, the financial crash that followed it and all of that that happened in 08 and 09, it was used as another opportunity to regulate the financial industry and to further cement this system that is not designed to help people, but is designed to help the financial markets. You know, it people is. people talked about how the purpose of these bailouts was to help people. And yet there were situations where because of the way the bailouts were created, and this is this is back in that that time, banks had an incentive to get people to foreclose on their homes because then they would get the foreclosed on home and then the federal government would give them extra bailout money to help them recuperate the loss they just suffered from you foreclosing on that home. And so they were basically making a profit as if they had sold the home at, at peak value any time someone foreclosed on their home, which was incredible for the bank. And so it totally skewed the incentives. And it's one of those things where you can see how the idea was good on paper. You know, we need to secure the banks was the idea we had over a hundred years ago. Yeah, we don't want runs on the banks. We don't know. want runs on the, the banks. What's the movie, the old movie, the classic Christmas one? Yeah, you're talking about It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We don't have your money. <laughs> no, and that and that is a great a great movie to demonstrate the fear that goes into creating legislation that's resulted in what we have today where things are so twisted. Yeah, there there is a rabbit hole here we could go down for long time because it's because banking is so twisted the incentives are so twisted in so many places in an effort to help people and make things improve they've created a variety of games that that change well that change everything really yeah this because is another sphere where you're like oh the banks are really where markets work you got this money and these investments and things and it's just so far from the truth at this point yeah it's it's so far i mean and and as time goes on, it, it it only gets worse. Just like in this case, you know, one of the reasons the federal government has been issuing more loans instead of private private companies is because there were concerns about predatory loaning practices that were being instituted by by private companies against students. And and of course that was happening because you have these protections. If if the students can't file for bankruptcy, can't pay it off, then they're the ultimate targets. You know, you've got young people who don't know what they're doing, <laughs> who just want to do what they've been told their their whole life, which is to go to college so they can have a career and make lots of money. You can give them that money, give them their dreams, and no matter what they do, whether or not they succeed, you know you'll get your money back. You know, what kind of skewed incentive system is that? Now, it's a little bit different. Now, we still have some private loans that do have guarantees and that are protected by the federal government. But then we've got the huge majority, which is federal government loans. And those are even, in many ways, they're even more predatory because now you just fill out a form and you get your money. Basically, anyone can get this money. I remember maybe, what is it, three three or four years ago, I decided to get a credit card in order to build up a, a credit score, credit history, you know, because it's something you need to do in, in today's economy. And I had no interest in going into debt. And so I had never gotten a credit score for anything. So I went went to the bank. I had been with this bank for five, six years. I had been working at my current job a solid three years, had a solid work history, solid renting history and was making good money, living within my expenses, everything that I would think would make me a good person to give a very small loan to. And the bank's working with the credit card company. They're working with me to go with all this trouble. And I get declined for my $1,000 limit credit card. <laughs> Un until the bank manager, the local bank manager makes a call and has them bend the rules so that I can get that $1000. This is a true story. He he called, you know, he called them, called me back and was like, "Yeah, I've been able to make it work. We've got you your $1000." Boom. Fantastic. Then uh then we we go back with my wife who's who doesn't have a solid job history, who who just got out of school. 
and she goes to get a loan from the same bank. And she gets a credit card with a $2,000 limit, no questions asked. Why did she get it so easily? Because she had a fantastic credit history of all the student loans she'd taken out while going to school. And that proved to the bank and to the credit card companies that she was <laughs> trustworthy. And, and so I go and ask her, you know, about what the process is for getting these student loans. There's no process. She was fresh out of high school. She said, I want some money. And I said, here you go. Problem solved. And because they give her money then, they're willing to give her money now. And one thing leads to another. And I just, I was looking at this world and how the system is set up. And it's crazy because you don't have to prove to the federal government that you're going to finish school. You don't have to prove that this is a profitable field for you to enter into. The requirements are very simple and very easy to get this student loan money. I mean, it's bureaucracy. You have to fill out the forms properly. You got to go through the steps. But if you go through the steps, you'll get the money. It's that simple. And these low requirements, this simple process skews incentives. It encourages people to go to school who maybe shouldn't be going to school or who haven't figured out what they want to do yet. The number of people who change majors when they go to school is super high. The average number of major changes, I think, is four. In our own experience, you know, my wife has gone to school. She changed her major several times and went through several semesters of school that are basically worthless because of the fact that she changed her major. She wasn't sure what she wanted to do, but she was told, you finish school, you go to college. You get a loan if you don't have the money to pay for it, then you'll be fine. And so that's what you do. That's what everyone does. This is the system that's been set up. This is the conditions that we've been raised on is if you want to make it, you've got to go to school and you got to go to the best school and you got to go right when you turn 18. You can't wait uh -huh. a year. You can't take a gap year. Yeah, the best school you can get into, not to be confused with the cheapest school. That's no, not a question. No, not the nicest the possible you school you can get into. No, and you'll hear stories of people who are offered full-ride scholarships at their, their local university or their state university and then barely make it in to the Ivy League school where they'll have to pay almost $100,000 a year in tuition and they'll go to the Ivy League school instead of taking the full-ride scholarship for the university that has the same degree or program but isn't as prestigious. Right, right. And perhaps that's a good investment, depending on what they're going to do with it afterward, right? Maybe maybe getting into that prestigious school allows them to make significantly more money. And a lot of them, it does. But that depends on what they're studying, right? That depends on a lot of other factors. And often, that's not what they're That's not about. being considered at all. They're going to yeah. the best school. It's a funny thing. That's a, so there's two things there that I want to talk about. Uh, one, one is the cultural thing, which you're referring to. Our culture says education is good. Go get an education so you can go get a good job. And there's two parts of that. There's, there's one, the idea that everyone should get a college degree. And the correct answer to that is, well, it depends on what they want to do, right? What, what, what do you want to do? What are you going to do with your life? Does it need that? And then the other aspect of it is, how much does that college actually help you do that thing? And this is a question that businesses and professions have been asking for a long time. We live in a strange Colleges are such a strange thing. You'd think that there's a clear line. You go to high school to go to college. You go to college to get the job. Each one prepares you for the next thing. But they don't. They really, they really don't. Most college degrees do not prepare you for a job. Now, they might be a necessary prerequisite. They might be. One of the things that's, that's really interesting, like law school is a good example. Law school is a lot of extra school. Got a degree. You then go to law school. It's a ton of work for years, something like you know, three years. Minimum, it's it's the average, like yeah. Yeah, three years. Yeah, three years and on top of a bachelor's degree. On top of a bachelor's degree. And then, and then you go and you start getting paid hopefully a lot of money if you get a job. You know, it's going to depend on a lot of things. And the, the, the lawyer market varies there, I, I think, right now. I think for a while now there's been more lawyers than there are positions. But besides the point, let's assume you get a job and you're getting paid $100,000 a year and you can climb pretty easily. This is the crazy part to me. Most law firms are going to lose money on you because you can't do the job. You're not prepared to do the job. 
if you, <laughs> they hope and pray that you stick around long enough, which usually takes something like three to five years, that you actually become competent enough that you start making them money. Because it's entirely possible that they gamble on you, that they go, we're going to hire you. You lose them money, and then you move, and you get a job somewhere else <laughs> before you're even making them money. Has school helped that process? Is school preparing you for that? Maybe to a very small degree. In law fields, generally, no. They're studying legal theory and things that most of them are not going to apply in the actual practice of their position. The vast majority of their time at law school is not spent making them better lawyers, at least in, a, in any absolute sense, not better at the job. Not to mention the four years getting that bachelor's degree before <laughs> right. they go into specialized law school. Right, which, can, which is in law prep, right, Brad? That's, that's what the degree has to be in, something related to the law. Oh, oh, it can be in anything? Wait, what? It could be in ballet? I almost bought your sarcasm. I was going to be like, what are you talking about, Dan? It doesn't have to be in law prep. Half the time, the degree doesn't have to be accredited. It can be in anything. Now, they might look more favorably on certain degrees. Yeah, it doesn't mean you'll get into law school, but yes. there's no requirement. There's no requirement. And if it's in ballet, and then you do well on the LSAT, you will get into law school. That, that LSAT will be more of an important signal than what your degree was in, by far. Yeah. Whether, whether they think you're capable of law school. And by capable of law school, we don't mean capable of practicing the law. We mean capable of law school, which is something different than practicing the law. This is higher education. Like this is <laughs> and to be fair to the lawyers, I bet their degree system is better prep for law than most things are prep for what they're doing. <laughs> I think it's probably more, can, compared to a lot of other things, it's probably it's more, more useful, applicable. more applicable to the job. Right. There's a reason why. Let, let's take the, the classic example. The classic example that everyone uses as proof that proof in defense of colleges and proof in defense of licensure. And that's the, met, you know, that's a, becoming a doctor, the medical industry, where they say this is proof that you need to get the education you know, regardless of how you feel about other fields, for sure in medicine, you have to go to college and you have to get the licensing. And yet the system is set up understanding that college and having the license isn't enough to have you be a good doctor. You know, they say here, you're going to go to all these years of medical school. And then once you're done and the, and the school says, hey, you've learned everything you need to know, we're going to go and we're going to make you an intern. And we're going to teach you everything you need to know about medicine. My favorite example is Scrubs because Scrubs is one of the shows that's hilarious. And doctors talk about how it's the most accurate of the work experience. But it starts out with them as interns. Day one of the show, they're interns, which means they've finished medical school. They're doctors. Right, they've been to a crazy amount of school. <laughs> yeah, they went to a crazy amount of school. They're doctors now. And they show up day one and the nurses have to help them do the most basic procedures. That's reality. I mean, University of Utah with their giant hospital, they have the interns and then they have the residents and then they have the actual doctors. You know, there's all these hierarchies right, to right. get there, even though technically all of them are doctors. All They've of them done have their the white school. coats. They've been through the ceremony yeah. where they're, they're dubbed a doctor. But that license and that education is is not what they need to actually be be effective. You still wouldn't trust them with anything. <laughs> what they actually need is a ton of work experience where they can demonstrate they can be trusted with all these things. Then you know they can be trusted with these things. And so I look at that and I say, well, maybe instead of going to all these years of medical school, they should just go to one year of a medical prep and then spend their time focusing as an intern. You know what I mean? Or something. You know, yeah, it's, studying, it's worth reevaluating. Studying the theory stuff while they're doing it as it's necessary, right? Yeah, yeah. It is worth reevaluating. I think for most, in most positions, an internship, internship is not the word I want. An apprenticeship is a better answer than Yeah, college. because that's what a medical internship is, is that- It's an apprenticeship, yeah. Is that the medical field has realized that college is so ineffective that you have to have years of apprenticeship after you leave college before you're trusted to work on your own. You know what I mean? You- and that's just straight up, right? Straight up. Right. No matter how good your scores were in college, the medical industry has accepted that that college degree is worthless without the practical experience. Yes. It, it cannot be trusted for anything on its own. 
And and yeah. that's why I'm glad you brought up in uh, apprenticeship stand because I think that those really are a fantastic answer and a fantastic option where you just focus on on learning by doing. And people say, well, that's super dangerous. And I'm like, then how come they do that in the medical industry, which is <laughs> which is you know the most dangerous field? That's the established right. practice there, let alone right. in arc welding. Right, right. It, at the end of the day, it is essential for learning and nothing else can replace it. And it's, it's just the way life is, unfortunately. Not unfortunately. I think, I think that's, that's good. That's good that you have to do something in order to learn how to do it. That's the natural way the world works. What's unfortunate is these legal requirements as well as these, these cultural requirements that say – you need to get this bachelor's degree first. You need to jump through these hoops first before you can do something. You know, we talked about licensure before, about having to go to thousands of hours of school before you can continue to braid hair like you were doing before school, but now legally. But now legally, which, which answers part of the, the tuition explanation, right? Why is the tuition skyrocketing? Part of it's inflation, but we, as we established, that covers a, a tiny portion of it. A, a massive part of it is that there is the demand. Right? People want to go to school, and they want to take loans or have to take loans to pay for it. And they think that there is going to be some massive reward at the end. And the answer to all those questions is there might, there might be a reward at the end. It might be a worthwhile investment. But people are not asking those questions very often. They they go there because that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go to college. Here's how I would put it, Dan. Part of the reason college prices are so inflated is because so many industries have licenses that require you to go to college. And so in order to even practice in those industries, you have to go to college. And by going to college, you get the reward of being able to practice in that industry. You know, as we mentioned, medicine and law are two prime examples of that, but there are many, many others. You know, yes. most most professional fields require some kind of degree, whether you want to be a therapist or you want to be a physicist or you want to be an engineer, etc. But right. Not all fields work that way, but people don't distinguish between the different kinds of fields. People assume that if you want to go into any field, you need to go to college. And so they go to college, they go to a university, they go to a school and get a degree in a field that doesn't require it. And they quickly realize how useless that degree is. You know, people go in and they get business. Yeah. Business is a great example where so many people who move up in businesses are doing so without degrees and so many people with business degrees are sitting on their hands because no company will hire them because they have no experience mm -hmm. yeah and that's a that's a pressure coming from legal institutions that's fueled by traditions right you get you get actual laws saying you have to have these licenses on the other side, there's the there's another pressure pushing people into degrees, and it's the public school tendency to advocate it, right? If you if you're going to, to school most of your life, and that school aims to get you into college, and you're going there seven to eight hours a day, five days a week for the vast majority of your childhood, everything is pushing you towards that college. Now a lot of people still don't go to college, and a lot of people are sad about how few people go still. But that that is going to skew how many people want to get in and affect their, their judgment of whether or not they need to, there is no doubt. There's no doubt that that has a massive effect on it. And as the culture praises more and more of those things and pushes people towards them, you're going to increase the demand. All of the increase in demand, whether it be from licensure or whether it be from the cultural things and the, the way we aim children, is going to increase how many people want to go, which allows the schools to jack up their price. And is there a natural check on the other end? Is there a competition among the schools over prices? Are there people who don't go to schools they can't afford? As we already pointed out, no, because they can get loans, and they can get loans with no questions asked. Mm -hmm. It destroys that natural price check right, of saying, right. is this worth it? Do I right. have 20 grand right now to spend on school? Can I pay back a 20 grand loan or a 40 grand loan or a $200,000 loan? Right. And it, 
And there is no incentive for the people giving the loans to check it either because it's coming out of, right now it's coming mostly out of government money before it was coming out of banks, but it was guaranteed by the governments anyway. This is why the prices have skyrocketed. And we can, and at some point, we'll do a similar kind of analysis of the healthcare thing. The healthcare thing is different. The way the pieces are different. But you can see how all of these things come together to create a storm where the price isn't actually that important. And people are going to go regardless of it. And you can increase the price without decreasing the people going. In fact, the people going is going to increase. Um, we noted that uh, with COVID-19, you'd think that less people were going to school maybe as they felt the financial burn. But it doesn't appear to be the case. If anything, uh, school attendance is, is doing quite well, and then student loans have significantly increased in the past year alone. In 2020, student loan, the, the, the total amount of student loans has gone up, and the amount owed has gone up in this last year as more people are taking out student loans, which is crazy to think of in a time of financial uncertainty to be going into more <laughs> debt, taking more risks, and yet that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. From some, in some ways, like, like you said, in that way, it, it seems odd. In other ways, it seems makes sense. You're like, okay, I can't work, so I'm going to invest in myself so that I can maybe be worth more later. And if it really were an investment, that would make so much sense. <laughs> it would. It would. And so in, in some of those cases, it will make their lives better off. And in others, it will make them worse. They'll have debt, and they will not have more money. It's frustrating as we're talking about this because we're not arguing don't go to college. We're not arguing, hey, if you want to become a doctor, boycott the system and do something else. No, right now, that's the only way. If you want to become a doctor, you have to jump through these hoops. If you want to become a lawyer, you have to jump through these hoops, regardless of how stupid they are. What we're arguing is that these are the problems that are breaking this system. And student loan forgiveness is not just not solving these problems. It doesn't even see them. <laughs> it doesn't even see it them. It doesn't even see that these are the real issues. That you can forgive student loans a thousand times over. You can simply pass a law that says tuition is free for everyone. And the federal government will pay for it. And what do you think will happen? All of a sudden, the universities that were charging $10,000 a year are going to be charging $30,000 a year until you put an artificial cap on it. Then you put an artificial cap and you say no university can charge more than 20 grand a year. Now the university that was charging 2 grand is now going to charge 20 grand. Whatever that cap is, they're going to hit it. Whatever the loopholes are, they're going to find them because now it's just a new game, just like everything else. And it's all going to be about who can play the game better. And don't get me wrong, it already is a game. But making it more of a game is not going to improve it. It's just going to <laughs> right. complicate it. I've heard of some universities disrupting this system. There are universities that will guarantee you a job making a, a minimum amount of money if you attend. And if they can't get you that job, you don't pay them anything. They charge after you go to school there. This is a university that says, look, what you're looking for is a job and we know it. We're going to either give that to you or you don't pay us. And if you do get it, then we'll take this amount of your pay and this is how it'll be until it's paid off. That makes sense to me, right? That's, that's what it would look like if a school said, we know what you want. You want a job. We're going to make the social connections. We're going to look at the skills that people who, <laughs> it, you know, we're going to go to a business. We're going to say, what do you want? And they're going to tell us, and we're going to turn you into that. And we're going to have a link to them so that we can connect you to them. And then you'll get that job, right? And they, their job placement is something like 97%. Are they actually a normal university? No, I don't, I don't even know if they're accredited. I doubt they are. Because that's another part of this. Like, you'd think that if this is the problem, what you'd get is a bunch of colleges started who were like, look, this is dumb. You could go to these schools and get nothing. <laughs> Or you could come to ours and we'll give you what you've been told you're going to get. We'll actually guarantee it or you pay us nothing. And that those would be cropping up all over. That's, that's what makes sense to me. Are they? No, they're not cropping up all over. Why? Because accreditation for colleges, starting a college, is absurdly difficult. It's crazy difficult to start yeah, a college. The, accredita the accreditation requirements are insane. 
They are insane. It requires so much money and so much backing, and it requires all these things. And there are cultural expectations that are legalized about what a university should be. And these don't fit the criteria. They're what we're told a university is, but it actually isn't. <laughs> and, so, and so you you may have to, uh, honestly, if, if that's what you're looking for, a job, look for some of those institutions. There, There's a few of them out there. Yeah, as Dan's saying with these cultural expectations is the cultural expectations are so strong that you go to high school, you go to college at an established accredited university, but the best one you can get into because the, be- the the more brain rec- the more brand recognition it has, the better off you'll be. And you pick a career, you know, you pick a path, doesn't really matter, but just pick one and go for it. You know, you talk to your high school counselor, you know, you say, I love, I love art. And they're like, great, go into art. And not realizing that after you get out of college, and then you have these $200,000 in debt for your art degree, that you don't actually need a degree to practice art. And while you were there studying about the history of art, there were 400,000 other people who are on TikTok and Instagram posting their art with the world and gaining recognition and gaining subscribers and gaining business while you were getting a degree that's that's now worth nothing. And that's part of what it is, is the world is changing and how communication works is changing, how businesses work is changing, and even accredited degrees are becoming less and less valuable in the world. You know, even 50 if they're becoming years ago, so many times more costly. More expensive. Yeah, even 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, having a an MBA was very important if you wanted to go into business. Now it is significantly less important. Even if you're trying to get hired by a business, not just start your own, having an MBA becomes less and less important. And it's more about your experience and about what you're able to do. And more and more, we're hearing stories and we're seeing evidence about the fact that the people who are succeeding in today's economy are the people who are going out there and doing something. And that's who's being rewarded. The surest path to wealth is still entrepreneurship. It always has been, and it likely always will be. It carries risks with it, which is why so many people who are wealthier, who are entrepreneurs, push their kids towards things like being doctors and lawyers, because it's more safe, or so yeah. they, or so the story goes. It may or may not be true these days, <laughs> and it's certainly the the costs are certainly uh, have to be weighed against the benefits. No, and and as as you pointed out with getting a law degree. What happens when too many people get that degree? You finish law school, you pass the bar, and no one's hiring. On your hiring. fourth try. Yeah, on your fourth try. Or you specialize in a certain field, and that field is not profitable, and now you're screwed. You know, what do you do? And that's that's what more and more people are realizing. So th- this was not a guarantee by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so another solution to this problem is for people to see that. It would be enough to change the system for people to go, yeah, you know what? I don't think this is a good idea. At the end of the day, a student loan problem is an individual problem that was accepted willingly. And yes, I have, I'm not saying forget, you know, forget about the poor people who, who are in these situations. Often they've been, they've been pushed into this culturally and, uh, and by bad advice given to them by people in positions of authority. I don't want to suggests that uh, they're just out of luck, especially since the money is owed to the federal government of all places. But you could literally stop this problem of student loan debt by people not taking student loans and not attending college. You know what happened if the colleges suddenly were at 50% capacity? The prices would come down. They'd have to come down. Now they might cut yeah. things along the way, some of them, and that'd be fine. It's time to cut some of this worthless stuff. It's time to cut some of the things that are irrelevant, right? It's time to to consider what actually needs to be there and what doesn't, because what's there doesn't have to be there, most of it. And to start letting some uh, some of these things shift. And that's not easy, given the sheer amount of legal requirements in terms of accreditation and in terms of programs and degree certificates and whatnot. That that will take some doing for that to shift. Yeah. But it needs to shift. It really needs to shift. 
And if people just stopped and said, this doesn't look like a good investment and found an alternative, found ways to get business experience and things through other means, and at least didn't take loans, would go to the cheap institutions, would go to places where it's going to be a couple, you know, 20,000 in debt rather than hundreds of thousands of debt. That's a solution. That is a viable solution to this problem that would shift yeah. things in the long run. The other solution, I think the one that's in terms of policy, the most important, much more important than changing how loans are given out or or any of those kind of financial criteria is to reform licensing. Licensing needs to be reformed because, because as Dan's saying, you can absolutely start making changes right now by spending your money differently. But until those licensing requirements are gone or, or at least severely changed, then colleges are going to have power that they shouldn't otherwise have. You know, if it's very difficult to become accredited and you have to have large amounts of money, and in, in order to become a professional in a field, you have to go to that accredited college, that accredited college is going to have a monopoly over the license for that profession. Yeah, and they as are long the gatekeepers. They have that, you have the to go through that exactly. gate. And as long as they're the gatekeeper, they're going to have power. You have to remove that gate in order to truly free the market for schools, as Dan was saying, that are actually there to get people what they really want, which is such and such a job in such and such a field doing such and such a thing. Because what we want is to, to wipe away the absurd and the ridiculous and the nonsensical and tell things Makes sense. And here's what that would look like. It's really simple. If I have if I have a bunch of money and I say there's a variety of ways I can use this money to improve my life, one of them is by investing. And one of the things I could invest in is a person who wants to improve their life. And so I could offer you money to go to school. Now you and I sit down and we meet face to face. Imagine you're in my shoes, right? You're you're you have money to lend to someone to improve their life and you want a return on that money. What would you ask them? I would ask them what their plan is. What are they going to study? How are they going to use this money? What their plan is for a job afterward? I would make as sure as I could that this was a good investment for my money as possible. The federal government will give you money if you sign a paper. They don't care what you're studying. They don't care what you're doing, right? This, this could be resources that you literally flush down the toilet. Yeah. They don't care. That's <laughs> not good for you. That's not good for them. It's not good for taxpayers. It's just good for the institutions that get fat off yeah, of it. It is. It is. That's the only group who wins with that. And to get to that common sense like, oh, we should have a plan. Because if I were going to get a loan to start a business, what would the bank ask me? They'd want to know what my business plan was, right? They'd want to know where I was going. They would give me advice on how to make it effective because it's their money at risk. Why isn't that happening with college? I'll tell you what would happen immediately. A number of programs would disappear <laughs> unless yeah. you had the money to fork it out yourself, right? Yeah, they, they, would become, they would become niche programs. Because no sane person would give you money for it, which is fine. And maybe they'd be worth studying because some knowledge is worth learning for its own sake. And universities should keep that. But we should not confuse those with investments for making money. They're not. They're not. Some knowledge is worth learning for its own sake, and you can teach it and, and these other things. I mean, the kind of knowledge we're giving you fits in that category, right? <laughs> if you're listening to this, you're obviously looking for some of that knowledge. Yeah, and, yeah, and I can vouch for that as someone who went to an unaccredited college with the intention of gaining an education. I wasn't going for the accredited degree. I wasn't going you're looking going for a job. a job. I was looking specifically at the learning process of that college, and that's why I went, and that's what I tried to gain from it. And I'm happy that I did that, but I went, I did that, and I paid the money with my eyes open. I knew what I was getting. They were clear about what I was getting, yeah. and that made the process so different from someone who thinks that they're going into it getting a job, and instead they're getting nothing. Or they're yeah. getting an education, but not a job, which is not what they wanted. Right, right. They thought they were at least getting both. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, guys, we could go on about this for a long time. We wanted to focus more on some of the financial aspects. But as we talk about the financial aspects, as we talk about the student loans, it starts to draw on so much more because in many ways, this student loan forgiveness is just the tip of the iceberg 
that is the bureaucratic nightmare that is the way that colleges and licensing and loans all blend together into create this system that is not good for individuals. It's not good for businesses. It's not good for people or our America as a whole. You may have noticed we hate to use the term society here, but it's not good for society. It's not good for any of these groups you want to look at, except for these direct institutions that are benefiting from it. It's benefiting these institutions who are making all this money from it. It's benefiting the teachers in those institutions. It's benefiting the lobbyists who are paid by those institutions to convince the government to keep those regulations in place. It's beneficial for the banks who are getting loans that are guaranteed. It's beneficial even for the individuals who have already gone through the process, have their license, and now are protected against competition. But for everyone else, and for the long term especially, it's just destructive. And we're actually paying the bill. Like it, That's what the federal forgiveness is. It's saying, yeah, the taxpayers will cover it. Yeah. The taxpayers will cover it. And if the taxpayers will cover it, then there's just going to be more. As Brad was saying earlier, student loan forgiveness is to accept that everyone else is going to have to pay for these losses. And that's simply not the way the world works. We can't keep writing off... <laughs> Yeah. mistakes and losses and continuing with the same bad behavior, which is how we started this episode is that, you know, with these student loans, no matter what, this is not going to be a solution. I don't want to be taxed so they can pay bureaucrats at a big university. It does not. <laughs> how is that? Why just? is that? A, yeah, how is that a good use of taxpayer money? But our biggest takeaway from this is that even without any major policy change as individuals, we can change the education system just by exercising how we choose to spend our money, whether or not we go to college and which programs we go to. And that can start to shift the process before any policy change is made and start moving it in a better direction. And we can start looking for those programs that are actually there to benefit us and not just benefit the institutions. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 30 of Rethinking Politics podcast. Thanks for joining us as we rethought student loan forgiveness and student debt. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can listen to our podcast on almost every place where podcasts are found. You can comment on any of the social media sites to reach us, or you can email us directly at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy our work, please share it or contribute to our efforts through our Patreon account, which you can find linked on our website. Thanks for listening.